Uh, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. The last couple of weeks we've been going through just the first uh, chapter, and there's certainly a lot here. And there's a lot more here than we would have time to even go over. <laughs> but the Lord specifically put this on my heart this morning, or actually the last couple of days, uh, concerning the passage we're going to look at this morning. And um, before we get into Matthew chapter 2, there are events in the life of Jesus that have already occurred. As you know, the Bible is not a necessarily a chronological record. Uh, sometimes there is a, a, a chronology, and other times it's kind of um, uh, not so much. Uh, but there is a chronology, and we know that as the harmony of the Gospels. And the harmony of the Gospels basically takes all four Gospels and puts them in a sequence of events. And that can be done with a lot of time and a lot of prayer and a lot of effort, but uh, those have, uh, that has already been done by many people. And, uh, and so we know that before this event that we're reading about today in chapter 2 of Matthew, before that occurs... There are some things in, the, in Luke chapter 2, in fact, verses 1 through 38, happen before we get to here in Matthew 2. So chronologically, uh, that'll help you understand. And for me, that's a big deal because I, I think it's important to understand the context of everything. And the context in the Word of God is so important, and it's important for us to piece these things together. And once you do that, things open up to you. Your, your, your mind and your heart open up, and your understanding will open up as well. So let me just highlight some of the events that have already occurred before we get to Matthew 2. In Luke chapter 2, the first 38 verses, it basically has for us the time that Joseph and Mary had to leave Nazareth and they had to go back to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus had planned a, a census for all the people and everybody had to return to the land of their nativity. And of course, Joseph's land of nativity was Bethlehem of Judah and certainly so was Mary's, but uh, Joseph was the head of the home. And so they would have to travel, travel from Nazareth up in the northern part of Israel all the way down south to Bethlehem. It's, it's a very long uh, walk, which is what they did. And, and remember that Mary and Joseph did that when Mary was very pregnant. Very pregnant. Can you imagine that, guys, on a rough terrain? It's, it's much, uh, you know, it, it'd be hard enough if, if the thing was paved with asphalt all the way from, you know, Nazareth down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem. But it wasn't that way. The roads were very rough. They were very rocky. There was a lot of rough terrain, and they had to go through that with a pregnant woman who was about ready to pop. <laughs> she was about ready to give birth. And so this is hard. And ladies, you, you can understand the trial that that must have been for Mary. So they have to leave Nazareth to go down to Bethlehem to, uh, for this census. And once in Bethlehem, remember, Mary delivered Jesus... And they were going to a cataluma or a, uh, a guest chamber in Bethlehem, but there was no room for them in the inn that they were to go in. And so they had to be out in the area under, um, we assume, under some kind of shelter where the animals were kept for all the guests that were in the, in the inn. 
And that's where Mary and Joseph were, and that's where Mary gave birth to Jesus. And she placed him, remember, in a manger, which is a feeding trough. And then in that same chapter, we also know that the shepherds who were out in the fields, they uh, were visited by this angelic visitation proclaiming that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, fulfilling many of the Old Testament prophecies, and certainly Bethlehem was the city of David. And those shepherds, finally, they come and they find out where Joseph and Mary were. And they come, and remember, they, they, um, they come and they visit both of them. And then Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. It tells us that in Luke chapter 2. According to the law of Moses... After eight days, a child is to be circumcised, a male child, and so that happened. And then about a month after that, they presented Jesus in the temple after Mary's purification had ended, which was about 33 days. And then Simeon and Anna, remember, have this wonderful moment where they see Jesus in the temple when he's being presented And Simeon and Anna both prophesy, very aged people waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so those events occurred, and now we get into chapter 2. And let's just go ahead and read just the, um, let's just read the first 12 verses of this. Notice what it says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, notice he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And here he quotes from Micah 5, verse 2. He says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And notice in verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when... They had opened their treasures. They presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Actually, let's read on in verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, notice, in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and there stay until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son." And so by the time the events of Matthew take place, Jesus was at least one year old. 
And we're gonna, we know that from uh, a verse that we're going to get to shortly in verse 16 specifically, but we'll, we'll get there. But he was at least one years old, maybe even one and a half, maybe even as old as two years old. And what we're going to see this morning, and one thing I want to zero in on, is just the plot that Satan had from the very beginning to snuff out Jesus' life. And not only to snuff out Jesus' life through, the, through Genesis, all the way throughout the Bible. The Bible remembers a book of redemption. And so as Herod, as we see him today losing his mind, probably a demon-possessed man, maybe if, if nothing else, he was severely oppressed and influenced by demons, he is now seeking to kill the Son of God who has been prophesied for hundreds of years, even a couple millennia. And so now we come to this place where he wants to kill Jesus. And there had been a plot long ago, beginning in the garden, we'll look at that. The devil knows very well the word of God. He knows it better than we do, but here's the difference. He chooses to disobey. In his rebellion, he chooses to disobey. But you and I, hopefully, are all obedient to the word of God because Jesus is our Savior. He's our, sa- he's our Lord and Savior, isn't he? And the Bible mentions that in that order, Lord and Savior, not Savior and Lord, because if he's not Lord of your life, how can you have confidence that he's your Savior as well? Because I can live like a devil and then claim the Lord to be my Savior, but it really doesn't work out so well. But if he's Lord of my life, chances are that transplant, that, that transition of my heart has already taken place. In other words, that he is my Savior. So Lord and Savior. Well, let's go back to verse 1. Notice, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Now, it's believed that Jesus was born uh, around 4 B.C. That's uh, a generally held date for his birth. Uh, but before the, uh, before the death of Herod, uh, but many extra-biblical sources claim and favor a date a little bit later than that, and speaking of autumn of 2 B.C., and not December 25th in the winter. Um, I think you and I know enough to know that Jesus was not born in the middle of winter where there was snow and everything like that because the shepherds wouldn't be out in their fields. And, and certainly, Caesar Augustus is not going to have a census where everybody's moving around when there's snow on the ground or when it's very cold. It's just something he wouldn't do. He's a madman, but he's not that mad. He, he's very practical. He wants his money. Right, So he wants to make sure there's a census and make it real easy for the people to find out. So we believe that sometime around the autumn of 2 BC is when Jesus was probably born. But we don't know for sure, and that's okay. Somewhere between 4 and 2 BC, that settles it for me, and probably in the autumn and not the winter. Are you guys okay with that? <laughs> I'm okay with that. So, But notice this Herod that was in power was Herod the Great, not Herod Antipas, his successor, but Herod the Great. And this man reigned in Judea from uh, 37 B.C. until 4 B.C., until the day that he passed away. But Herod the Great was Idumean, or he was an Edomite, and he was not a Jew, even though his father and his family had converted to Judaism. And his mother was a Nabataean princess. And Idumea was south of of Judah and Nabatea was even further south and also to the uh, east and, and around the south of Judah. 
And notice that these wise men came from the east. These wise men, we know that they are called the Magi or Magos in the Greek. And these were Oriental scientists. They were magicians. They were astrologers. Men who were very learned and and studied the stars and the patterns of stars. And many of them came from Babylon. uh, And even the ones that are coming to Jerusalem to see Jesus, they they could have been from Babylon or from the Medes or the Persians, which is uh, modern-day Iran. And they discovered this unique body in the heavens. And because they were astrologers... It piqued their curiosity, and they began to look into it. And finally, they discovered, you know, there's something about this. And the Jewish scriptures also say that there's going to be a Savior born, and could this be the time? And so they diligently sought these things, and they traveled for hundreds of miles on very rough terrain, and they brought with them all of these treasures, all of these treasures. But they were noticing the star And it reminded me of a psalm, Psalm 19. Remember what it says? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. And these men, these uh, from another pagan nation, they were paying attention. And so they're looking. And so even the heavens were engaged in the birth of Jesus to show that he is the savior of the world. In fact, the Hebrew Matzeroth is said to show the story of redemption through the patterns in the stars. The virgin and then the death of Christ and all of these and the constellations. And don't get that confused with astrology and, and the, the horoscope and all that. But the Jews saw these patterns and they believed that there was a story of redemption in them. And that's the way they approached those things. But for hundreds of treacherous miles, these magicians, these astrologers came. And there were more than three You know, the Bible says that they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but that doesn't mean that there were three kings. Although the songs tell us, we three kings of Orient are, right? We all learn that, but there were more than three kings. There were probably a number of them, and they had a big entourage. They had a built-in bodyguard system all the way from Babylon or Persia to Jerusalem, okay? And so there were more than just three. There were probably many more. And that breaks my heart because I got this nativity scene on our, on our mantle of our fireplace and I've got these three kings and the little you know, oxen and the, and the lamb and everything else and you know, it's biblically a little bit obtuse, but anyway, it's okay. But notice verse two, it says that they came to Herod saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And this idea of worship is to literally kneel down to, to be... Um, prostrate on the ground with their head to the ground, the idea of kissing the hand, that's the kind of thing, the the obeisance that they were doing. They came to worship him, and when King Herod heard this, he was troubled in all of Israel with him. And this troubled Herod, uh, because he might have been aware as a convert to Judaism, he may have been aware of the Jewish prophecies of a messiah. Or he may have just felt threatened. Remember, Herod was so proud and suspicious of his reign 
that uh, his reign being taken from him, that he would kill many of his sons and even one of his wives. Mary Amney was one of the wives who he killed because he was suspicious of her. Herod was a maniac. He was possessed of his power, and any threat to that power he would extinguish. And in fact, in such In light of that, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, had this to say about Herod. He said, it's better to be a Herod's, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because obviously, if Herod was converted to Judaism, the pig would be safe in his house, but his sons would not be safe. And all of Jerusalem was worried too. They probably knew the character of Herod as well, and they thought, if he's going to be upset, things are going to get really weird around here. So they knew the character of this man. And for someone to come and say, where is this king of the Jews, is going to upset the apple cart pretty bad. (laughs) And so, verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he uh, of them uh, together... Let me read that again for some reason. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he of them where the, uh, the Christ was to, he asked them where Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophets. And notice, now they diligently search. Do you understand what they've done? That now they've searched diligently about this Messiah, this child who was to be born. The Hebrew scriptures told a lot about. And so now they're searching and they're searching. And doesn't that make them accountable now? It does. The religious leaders later on should have taken notes of what was taking place here at the time of Jesus' birth, because this was a big deal. But notice, he quotes from Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. And notice, um, you know, this specific scripture gave Satan, and by extension, Herod, all he needed to launch his critical assault. Because Satan has ears. Satan has eyes. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent, but he's aware of what's happening. And his curiosity is piqued, and we'll look at why that is shortly. So Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star had appeared. He called them secretly probably because he didn't want this getting out and possibly thwarting his plan to kill Christ. So he keeps it kind of on the down low so that he can go through with his plan. And you can see here the devil turning the wheels in Herod's mind and his heart and hatching this plan. But notice verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Herod sends the wise men. He says, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. In the margin of your Bible next to that, write this, these two words. Yeah, right. In all caps. I've got it in my Bible. Tell us where he is that I can worship him too. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. So when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. And I love this because the word, the verb there, went before them. It literally means it led them. So unlike stars that we see in the heavens today, they're not movable, are they? I mean, they move, but they all move together, right? The solar system, I mean, the earth moves and we see everything and everything's kind of fixed. But this star, this star 
is they are following this star from Babylon, from Persia, wherever they're at, and they're being led by it, and they are following that star. There's something about this, and they're like, something is happening, something is about to happen, and we want to be there and take pictures. (laughs) We want to be there for this event And they had an inkling. And so when they saw the star, notice they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And again, notice these are just the gifts, not the number of kings or the number of um, wise men. And gold they brought, certainly because of his kingly and heavenly origin. If he's the king of the Jews, if he is the Messiah, then he is worthy of any gold that we could bring him. And they would also bring frankincense, which is an ingredient, if you remember, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it was uh, frankincense was part of the, of the incense that they would use in the temple. And it speaks of intercession. And Jesus, we know, is... It says, therefore, he is also, speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 7, he's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Aren't you glad that Jesus prays for you? I am very glad that he prays for me. I don't deserve his prayers, but he prays for me. He prays for you and I. And is, he gonna, is God going to answer those prayers? Is this father going to make sure that those prayers are answered? Because Jesus, when he prays, he knows exactly what to pray, and there's no flesh in his prayer. He says, Lord, preserve them through COVID-19. <laughs> Lord, help them. Help them. And myrrh also they gave. And myrrh was used for embalming the dead. We know that in John chapter 19, remember when Joseph and, and Nicodemus Came. It says, a Nicodemus who came first uh, to Jesus by night also came with, um, with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. So there's something about this gift that they're bringing to Jesus that has a connotation of death with it. And naturally so. And in fact, even in the gifts they give to him, it's prophetic, isn't it? Because we know that he is God, the gold. We know that he's going to intercede for us. He always makes intercession for us, the, the frankincense. And we also know that he's going to die. This one was born to die, and he would die for the sin of the world, for the sins of the world and for the sin of the world. And he died for us specifically, and that speaks of the myrrh. But notice in verse 12, Then being divinely warned, notice, in a dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. See, these roads going into Jerusalem from these different places in the Orient, they were all very well-traveled roads. And there were other ways to get to certain places. Some were more direct and maybe even a little smoother than others, and those would actually be used more often, naturally. Because it's easier on the feet. It's easier on the animals that you're traveling with or the people that you're traveling with. But notice, once these guys had been divinely warned by God, and, and, and this idea of warning them in a dream, four times in this chapter it mentions that God warns through a dream. One time he speaks to the Magi themselves, and then the three other times he's speaking in a dream to Joseph, the one who was the caretaker with Mary, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Lord can use dreams, and he often does. 
He used dreams to communicate to Joseph, the son of Jacob. He even used dreams in the lives of pagan kings. Remember, during the time of Joseph back in Genesis. God gave to Pharaoh a dream about a drought for seven years. And he couldn't figure it out. And God gave to Joseph the understanding for that dream. And he saved so many people by, by listening to God and by God speaking to him. We think of Pharaoh, an Egyptian pagan ruler. And what about Nebuchadnezzar from, from Iraq, modern-day Iraq, the land of the Chaldeans? The Lord also spoke to him about events concerning the end times and pinpoint accuracy. And then Daniel comes along and interprets those things. And folks, do you understand how big of a deal that is? Notice God didn't give to Daniel that dream. He gave to Daniel the interpretation, but he went to a pagan king. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're the king of kings, but I'm the king of kings. And in fact, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Your kingdom is the head of gold. But your gold is going to fade, and then there's going to come the silver, the Medes and the Persians, and then the bronze, the, the Alexander the Great, and so on and so forth, all the way to the end times of a revived Roman Empire, which is even yet future to us today. But Jesus says, I'm the king of kings. And he gave that interpretation to a young man named Daniel to give to the king. So now notice in verse 13, now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, remember, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, notice, in a dream, saying, arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I, until I bring you word again, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And remember, last week we talked about this crisis of obedience that certainly Joseph would have to go through. And many people in the Bible, in order to be obedient to God, sometimes you have to go through a crisis. Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey the traditions of men or even anyone else other than God? Your boss can tell you to do one thing and it goes against everything the word of God is about. You have a crisis of obedience. And Joseph had a crisis of obedience. And notice also that the Lord told him to go to Egypt until he spoke to him again. Did God know at that time that Herod would die pretty soon? Of course he did. Couldn't he have told Joseph, Joseph, I want you to go there for a few months, but on this day and on this time, Herod's going to die and then you can come. God could have done that, but he didn't do that. And that's what makes the crisis even more beautiful. Not for Joseph, but he has to wait. He has to be patient. He has to wait, right? I'm waiting on God until he tells me. Who knows how long they were there in Egypt? And then finally he... God tells him in a dream to go back. But when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Notice he did it immediately. He didn't waste time. He didn't try to argue with God about the details of the trip. He simply listened and was obedient immediately. If God speaks to you, do it immediately. Otherwise, he would speak to you later. God has spoken to me, I remember uh, coming on staff here at the church back in 2002, or 2001 or 2002, and he told me, he, he invited me to come. And I had no idea that I would be the senior pastor one day, but he told me, this is what I want you to do. And I argued with the Lord literally for a year. 
until he zapped me with a scripture in Deuteronomy. But I wasn't very faithful. (laughs) But Joseph was faithful. God spoke to him. He did it. And boy, there's a lot of credit that people need to be given when they obey the word of God. Be one of those people that obeys the word of God the first time, not the second or third time. Amen? And so look at verse 15 and notice, and and be there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord. Notice, spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And of course, this is uh, Hosea 11. And remember, there is going to be a lot of Old Testament references in Matthew In fact, there's going to be 96 different references as we go through Matthew of the Old Testament, more so than any other book with the exception of Revelation. And again, Matthew's pointing to this one, this one, this king of the Jews. But notice, we get to verse 16 now, which is really where we're going to dig into what we're going to talk about this morning. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, And was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to... There it is right there. You might want to underline that. From two years old and under. Why two years old and under? Because he, as he was talking with the Magi, they put two and two together and said, this baby, this king who is to be born, has to be born within this certain amount of time. And that was the range of age that Herod knew he had to exterminate to make sure he killed Jesus. Do you see how demonic he was? I don't even know if Herod knew, but he was being either possessed or manipulated by a demon, maybe even the devil himself. But notice the deceiver was deceived. Herod was deceived by the Magi. And guess what? The Lord told them to do that. Isn't that remarkable that God would tell the man who was in power at the time, you know, there are times when disobeying an authority is right and even necessary to protect life and uphold righteousness because obeying God is more important than anything else. If your ruler tells you to do something against the word of God, you have every right in Jesus' name to disobey that command respectfully. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In other words, because they had died. Now the context of this passage in Jeremiah that is being quoted here is um, the prophet uh, Isaiah speaking concerning the the destruction that was coming against Jerusalem and the the loss of life that would occur, even the infants, during the time of the Babylonian invasion. And, um, And Rachel's tomb actually was very near Bethlehem where this this event would occur. And so uh, that is why she is seen here weeping over these children's deaths, and which leads us to really the main part of the message today, and that is this satanic plot against Jesus, the king of the Jews, and his people. Not only Jesus, but against his people. You know, if we look in the very beginning, Satan sought to destroy man And remember, man is the object of God's love. And God wanted to have fellowship with the man. Remember in Genesis 2, verse 6, as Adam and Eve are there in the garden, 
God gave one command to them. And what was that command? The Lord commanded the man saying, of all the trees in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? Because for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. (laughs) So in order to destroy what God loved, can you see this? All Satan had to do was to get Adam and Eve to disobey God and they would bring the judgment of God upon themselves. Satan didn't have to do anything. All he had to do was tempt them because when God says, don't do this or you will surely die, the word literally means in dying, you shall die. That's where the spiritual death comes in. Slowly they were dying. Their spirit was at enmity with God. They would slowly begin to die. In dying, they would ultimately die. And Satan says, that's what I need. That's what I need. And who knows what Satan really knew? Who knows how much God had given information to Satan about his plan of redemption? We don't know. We know as soon as things were spoken or as soon as things were written down, you can assume that the devil knew about it. And he was very much aware of what was coming because he knew that ultimately his doom was going to come. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Because notice in, in Genesis 3 verse 15, Remember, after Satan got Adam and Eve to disobey God and, 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 and put this awful wrench in their relationship, notice what it says in, in 3.15, as God is judging the serpent, who was Satan, in the garden, and notice what he said to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed, a woman doesn't have a seed, she has an egg. So again, the virgin birth, we looked at this the, other, the last week or so. But notice that this seed is ultimately, ultimately found its fruition in Jesus Christ. So the battle is going to be between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Christ will ultimately have an end of Satan. Ultimately, God wins. And in Genesis 3.15 there, we see Satan's demise given. And as a result, he knows this. And so his game plan begins to be established. And from this time going forward, Satan would seek to destroy the seed of the woman, not only and ultimately Jesus, but also his people, the Jews, and ultimately and evidently also to us, the church as well. Do you understand? We are guilty by association. The Jews really get it. And then the next is the Christian or the church of Jesus Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile. So God, and as we look through the scripture, we're going to do this very quickly, and it's not going to be exhaustive, okay? That would take a whole, I'd love to take one service and just follow this straight through because the plan of God and the, uh, the attack of Satan has been consistent throughout. And so we already see Satan knows his end is coming in Genesis 3.15. And so now he's going to be start, he's starting to move. He's going to start putting the pieces together and he's getting information, a little information here, a little information there. And he's putting his plan together. And it ultimately uh, continues on in the life of Abraham. Genesis 12. Remember the Lord said to Abraham, 
When Abraham was still in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, in the Ur of the Chaldees, the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. Notice, to a land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you, Abraham, shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, and so Satan's going, hmm, there's something about this Abram. God is doing something here. I better pay attention. And you better believe that he was. Satan was opposed not only to the Messiah being born, but also against this, the, the, the Jews having the land of Israel. I don't know if you've noticed. Have you noticed any issues with the Jews being back in Israel and the problem with the, with the, you know, the Palestinians and the Jews clashing? I don't know. Do, were you aware of any conflicts going on between the two of them? Of course, it's been going on for hundreds of years. And it's been happening. And why is that? Because of what we're talking about right now. Satan knows his end, and so he's inciting as many people as possible. He wants to do two things. He wants to keep God's promises from coming to fruition, and he also wants to destroy the seed of the woman, who ultimately he knows is certainly the Jewish people coming down through a certain line, but ultimately it's going to culminate in Jesus Christ. And he's like, i got to do whatever I can to stop that. It's like the Grinch. He wants to stop Christmas. That's who the devil is like. He's like the Grinch. He's trying everything he can to stop this from coming. But notice what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And notice what God says to him. And you better believe that Satan was tuning in on this. God said to Abram, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, Abraham, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And so God is promising him a great number of people coming through him. And then he goes on in, uh, in verse 18. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants, Abraham, to your descendants, I make a covenant with, with you to give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the, Parati- the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I give all of that land and all those people into your hand. And ultimately, he, God gave him the land. And then we go into Genesis chapter 17. And it gets even, it, the, the, it starts to narrow down here, not only just the land that God is going to give, and there's a reason that he's going to give the land to them, because it's ultimately going to come down to a person. Notice, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. said, I'm almighty God, and walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. And then Abraham fell on his face, and and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And Satan is going, Really? Kings? 
Could this be the seed of the woman? Could it be? This everlasting covenant that God spoke to Abram about was, um, he promised it not only to Abraham, but the same to Isaac and then on to Jacob. But then we get to Jacob at the end of Jacob's life. Remember when he's in Egypt and what does he say? As he's prophesying over his 12 sons on his deathbed, what does he say to Judah? And you've heard this so many times so far. But notice in in Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob said to, to Judah, he said, The scepter, the right to rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now Satan is going, okay, now I got it. He's going to go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And ultimately it's going to go through Judah, this king, who's going to reign. And so now he's putting two and together. And as you go through the book of Genesis, you'll see that the attacks of Judah especially were ratcheting up. And why is that? Because God, the, the devil was seeing this thread. And he knows, he remembers Genesis 3.15. He remembers what God had spoken of, his demise, his destruction, eternal destruction, not just a final act, but no, eternal destruction is what Satan is going to have. Now let's fast forward a few hundred years and Saul finally being rejected by God as being Israel's first king. And you remember that David was anointed and, he, and, and Saul begins now to persecute and seek to kill David. And so Saul, inspired by Satan, sought to kill David many times. But there was one specific event that only needs to be mentioned for our purposes today, and that's in 1 Samuel 23. And let me read it to you because it's the same demonic spirit that was manipulating Herod was manipulating Saul of uh, uh, the, the Israel's first king, and we'll see it. In fact, it's kind of very interesting how uh, it's kind of spooky in a way because the, the things almost line up pretty clearly. Let me read it to you. First Samuel 23, And David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness, and this was the time that he was on the run from Saul. And he remained in the mountains of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. And so David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. And so let me just get down to verse 19, because now Saul comes to the Ziphites and says, hey, where is David? In fact, he says that the Ziphites came to Saul at Gabeah saying, is not, is, 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 is not David hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all you desire and come down and our part will be to deliver him into the king's hand. In other words, these guys are snitches. So they, they saw David in the land and they go to Saul and, hey, you know where he is? We can tell you where he is. And Saul's like, great great. And what does he say? He even brings God into it. Look at this. And Saul said, blessed are you of the Lord for you have compassion on me. Can you imagine bringing God into this equation when the promise would be all this is all about from Genesis all the way down has been through it's it's all to David. And do you think Saul, a Jew would understand that? Certainly he would, but he's being deceived by someone else. And now he wants to snuff out his life too. And even though Saul was filled with jealousy and rage, the same source was Satan. The same source was the devil himself. He said, blessed are you of the Lord for you have compassion on me. Notice, please go and find out for sure 
And see the place where his hideout is, and who has seen him there. For I am told he is very crafty. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides. And come back to tell me with certainty. Does that sound familiar? With what we just read in Matthew 2? Herod saying to the Magi, Hey, go search out diligently and find the child so that I can go worship him too. And the Magi are going... Uh, we're a little bit wiser than that. I don't know if you saw that in the Bible, but it says wise, wise men. We're wise men. We're not foolish. No, we're not going to tell you. See ya. <laughs> right? Thank God they were wise men. God gave them discernment. You better get away from this guy. He's a cracked pot. Can you see what the devil is doing, what he has been doing up to this very moment of Christ's birth all the way going back from Genesis, the seed of the woman, and what's ultimately going to happen to Satan. Can you see? And we could have taken more time, but we're just, we got to go at a very fast pace here. But all throughout Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and through Judah and now to David, and now David is being hunted by a man, one of his own countrymen, Saul. And, and, and this, was, this was the covenant that God had made with David. And how important was David's life? Remember, God said to him in 2 Samuel 7, he said, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Certainly speaking uh, in the immediate of Solomon, but ultimately speaking of Jesus coming through him. And I will set up your seed after you who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon's only going to live for 70 years, folks. But God's saying, through your son, I am going to set up his kingdom forever. That means that there's someone else who's going to live forever. And who is that person? The seed of David. Ultimately, it's Jesus, right? And I will be his father and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from uh, him as I took it from Saul, whom I'm removed from before you and your house and your kingdom, David, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you see all that was riding on David's life? And how close did Saul get on many of occasions? All of this was coming down to a head all throughout history, to this point that we're looking at now. So David is on the run. His, God had given him promises. He said, through your seed, I'm going to set up on, on, on the throne forever. Speaking of even future events to us today, the millennial reign with, King, with Christ on the throne and us in our glorified bodies with him on, on this earth for a thousand years. And then you go forward a little bit further and you come to the book of Esther. Remember Haman, the Agagite, who sought to destroy the Jews? And thank God Mordecai and Esther, they intervened and took great strides to save their people. And God was victorious over that attempt. And now go forward to Isaiah, to 700 B.C. now, and then God gives to Isaiah this prophecy. This is one that we've already heard a lot. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So now Satan is thinking to himself, okay, I got Judah. Now there's going to come a son. Okay, a son is going to be born. And I even know his name now. It's going to be Emmanuel. And then in Isaiah verse 9, 
Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Oh my goodness, Satan thinks. This is going to be God in the flesh, the Messiah. He is, he is the seed of the woman. He's putting two and two together, and he's persecuting and killing everybody in that path. Do you understand? Can you see that? Hopefully I've done a decent job of, you know, briefly showing you. There's a lot more, but throughout the history of the Old Testament, he's attacking, attacking, trying to thwart God's plan of getting this son. He wants to kill Christ, and he hates his people. He hates the Jews, and he hates the church because of our association. And so Herod the Great, seeking to kill Jesus now, personally, and when that failed, he had to send a great uh, army into Bethlehem in hopes that one of those who would be killed would be Jesus. Again, the same demonic spirit that we saw back in the garden who first introduced himself to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. Satan, the same demonic spirit that has been working through the millennia, throughout the Bible, now takes root. And, and, and now, as Jesus is born, and as he continues to grow, that same demonic spirit now is working uh, through the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and even one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas. One of his own betrays him. And then he gets the religious leaders, the Jews, to ultimately forge a false narrative and ultimately crucify Jesus. And then after Jesus was incarnate and he paid the price for our sin on the cross, after he was resurrected, now there's nothing Satan can do now. He's tried everything to snuff out through this Herod, killing Jesus at his birth, but now there's nothing he can do to stop it. So Jesus grows, he grows, his ministry begins, he's trying to infiltrate, and he did finally with Judas. He thinks he's, he thinks he's successful by finally allowing Christ to be put to death, and he's rejoicing and rejoicing, and he forgets, oh boy, <laughs> my goose is still cooked, because the Bible says that that's going to happen anyway. And he rose again, defeating death and hell. Did he read Psalm 16, verse 10? Neither will he allow his Holy One to suffer corruption, but he would raise him from the grave. Was, did Satan put two and two together? Very intensely intelligent being. Never think for a minute that he is a dummy. Not to give glory to him at all, but do you understand this being is a very intelligent being. He studies. He knows. And so, now that Jesus has died on the cross and he realizes that he's still ultimately doomed, what does he turn his attention to? The Jews. The seed of the woman the seed of the woman was ultimately Christ, but also his offspring, the Jews, because he knows that through the Jews came the Messiah, came the word of God, and ultimately Christ is coming back for, to save them. He's going to rapture the church first, but he's ultimately going to save Israel. And now Satan, all he can do is try to thwart that plan. In fact, in Revelation 12, it says something interesting. Revelation 12, we're just going to look at the first six verses, but it gives a panorama of what is happening, what has happened in Israel with, with Jesus coming to 
to, to be born, and ultimately it, it, it goes all the way through this, this narrative, all the way to the very end during the tribulation period. And we're only going to look at the first six verses, but it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And if you've studied Genesis, you know that this is speaking of Israel specifically as a whole. And then being with child, notice, Israel being with child, speaking certainly of Mary personally, but it's really speaking of the nation. She cried out in labor to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a fiery great red dragon, who we know is Satan, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his head, and his tail drew a third of the stars from heaven. And the dragon stood before the woman. So Satan stood before Israel, stood before Mary in a sense, and it says to us what? Stood before her who was ready to give birth to do what? To devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That happened when? At the, at the resurrection and at, at the ascension of Christ. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should be fed there 1,260 days or three and a half years. And that's still yet looking forward into the great tribulation period. Do you follow? And so this, um, so now that he can't stop Jesus, now he's going to go after his, his people. He's going to go after the Jews. He stood before Israel and waited for her to be delivered of her child. And once... Once the child was delivered through Mary and the nation, in a sense, birthed Christ, he put into Herod's heart to destroy the child. That was Satan working through Herod to do that deed. And not only to the Jews, but also to the church. (laughs) Satan comes after the church. Has anybody felt oppressed? Have you ever felt like the, the devil is coming after you or that there was heat in the world turning up on the church? Heat is turning up. Heat is turning up on the church. And can I tell you, I believe it's going to be heating up a little bit more. We're going to see more heat in the future, folks. Jesus said, if the world hates you, speaking to his disciples, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, and I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he goes on, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine and my manner of life and the faith and the long-suffering, the perseverance, the persecutions, the afflictions which happened to me. And he goes, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So you and I, as part of the church, are also going to suffer persecution. Why? Because we are guilty by association. We're going to be... The devil tried to snuff out Jesus' life he tried to snuff out the Jews. He's still very um, trying to do that. Uh, anybody heard of the term anti-Semitism? Why is that happening? Because of what I'm talking about right now. He couldn't kill Jesus. He can't thwart his plan, and he's angry. He's going to try everything he can to kill them, to keep God's promises from happening. And there's a lot more promises yet to come. And he's like, well... If I, can't, if I couldn't kill him, ultimately, I'm going to go after them, and I'm going to take away the apple of his eye. I'm going to take as many of them as I can. And he not only says that to the Jewish people, but he also says that to the Christian. 
made up of Jew and Gentile. So have you felt the heat? (laughs) Are you feeling the heat? Because we're going to feel some more heat. But thank God that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? Don't you worry about it, saints, because things are going to heat up, but God is with us. And he is not going to abandon us. He is Emmanuel. Never for one minute think that you're going to be in the clutch of the devil because he is not going to allow. He says, the the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Now, think about this, though. Let's think soberly about it because the church began in the first century. And did the first century church go through persecutions and great peril? Yes, they did. And yet God said, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. So obviously that means our security is in him. Are we going to go through difficult times? Even before the rapture, I think we are. I think we're going to go through difficult times. Do you need to be afraid of it? No, we don't need to be afraid of it. That's why I implore you to grab as many as you can. Grab as many people in your life as you can and wake them up. We need to be awoken. We need to be revived. If you're like me, I've, I've lived in the church for a long time now, and there's a, there's a, there's a, this can happen to us, folks. We can get lethargic and we can get uh, complacent, and now is the time that we have to awake out of our slumber, and we need to tell people. We need to pull them out of the fire. God wants us to be a part of that. But we have to awaken. We have to see the severity and how close we are. We are very close to the end, folks. And we need to be engaged. Please, for the love of God, read, read, read your Bibles. And for the love of God, pray. Pray like you've never prayed before. Join us for our prayer meetings. Sorry. As, as I'm speaking to you, I'm actually, there's a lot more people that I'd be speaking to, okay? But I want to encourage you to please join us. Now is the time. Now is the time. We need to draw closer to the Lord unlike ever before. Please. Your own heart, your own life, your own faith, your own purpose with what God has for you is, it need, it's right now. We need to find out what that is. Now is the time to be all in. All in. Will you please be all in? I beg you in the name of Christ. Be all in. Because he loves you. He wants the best for you. And you know, finding the purpose of God for your life right now is the greatest thing you will ever experience. I can tell you that because I'm, I'm experiencing it myself. I'm, I'm, I'm just so excited about what God is doing. Even though I know the times aren't going to be easy coming ahead. They're not going to be easy. In fact, I think my faith is going to be more tried and tested as I go forward. So why do we think that there is so much anti-Semitism and wars and terrorism against the Jews and hatred for the church? It's because of everything I've just shared with you. Lord, we thank you for just uh, being with us, Lord. What a blessing it is to know you. And Lord, to know that you know us so well, Lord. And so, Lord, encourage us, Lord. Lord, take us apart and build us up, God. We need you, and and Lord, we... um, 
We want to be effective for you in these last days, Lord. So set us on fire again, Lord. Teach us, Lord, how to worship you. Lord, teach us how to minister to you. And Lord, to you be the glory and the honor and praise. In Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.